the way our bodies handle serotonin and, mm -hmm. and dopamine, uh, neurotransmitters and hormones, it, it, mm -hmm. it sort of affects the way we as individuals move into situations of novelty. We have a, a primitive brain that whenever we go into a situation that's new to us, it mm -hmm. automatically wants to register threat. Curiosity is an interesting construct because everyone assumes we have it. Mm -hmm. You know, we all assume, if you ask somebody if they're a curious person, of course I am. When actually only about 20% or so of the population, at least from my data, seem to have a natural level of curiosity. Welcome to season two of the International Business Today podcast. We are focused on issues in international business, issues of pressing concern that matter to businessmen, executives, academics, students, anyone who's interested in international business. I'm very excited to start our second season. I think it's wonderful, the support you've given and your listenership and your keen interest in what we do. I'm delighted that we can start with the second season, focusing on topics of continuing importance in the world of global business. As you probably know, at the DeMora McKim School of Business at Northeastern University, we use a lens of academic research and knowledge-based insights. We're committed to presenting to you, to publicizing in an understandable fashion, the insights of scholars and practitioners from the world of international business research and implementation. With me today is Paula Kalijuri, who needs no introduction. She hosted the first season of this podcast series. Uh, welcome back, Paula. Uh, thank you, Ravi. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm glad to have you here, Paula. Uh, and for those of you who are not familiar with her work, let me summarize some of Paula's achievements. She's an academic, a distinguished professor in the Department of International Business and Strategy here at Northeastern, She's a specialist in organizational psychology, and her teaching, research, and consulting all focus on one very important skill. How can people be effective in other cultures that are not their own? When you travel, when you work overseas, when you work with colleagues on research projects, in overseas manufacturing, in launching global marketing campaigns, in all these kinds of activities, the central question becomes, how can you be successful when working with people from other cultures? Paula is the co-founder of Skillify, which is an amazing company. What Skillify does is democratize soft skills so that they're accessible to all classes of people, not just people who go to elite universities or have the fortune of coming from privileged backgrounds and have been able to travel with their parents when they were young. Skillify is, I think, a very important venture for Paula because it complements her academic research with her consulting work. So Paula, Welcome to today's podcast, where we're going to be talking about cultural agility. Sounds great, Ravi. This is exciting. Thank you for bringing up Skillify. It's been a labor of love, and we had an angel investor come in and say, yes, we absolutely need to democratize soft skill development. So mm -hmm. it's been a labor of love. So my first question to you, Paula, is this uh, phrase, cultural agility. Perhaps you can tell me and our audience what is cultural agility and why is it important? Sure. So it's, it's the ability to comfortably and effectively work in different countries and with people from different cultures 
whether those cultures are generational differences, national differences, professional differences, it's, it's really whatever uh, mm -hmm. demographic difference is present. So cultural agility is the ability to do that effectively. Mm -hmm. And in your opinion, who do you think needs it most? Is it businessmen or politicians or the tourist who goes overseas or students? Who do you think really needs this knowledge of cultural agility? Yeah, it's all of the above. Yeah, it's all of the above, Ravi. So it's really any mm -hmm. time an individual is operating outside of his or her home country or outside of his or her generation or profession, mm -hmm. when they need to engender trust or communicate effectively or collaborate, any of those situations are situations where you need cultural agility. We're finding that our students who are studying abroad at age 20 need it, but so are our you know, 7 year old executives who have, are working in a, in a multicultural environment. We've worked with pharmaceutical sales reps who are interacting with foreign-born healthcare professionals, but we've also worked with the military who are mm -hmm. doing joint operations. So really, it's any situation that requires human-to-human -human interaction mm -hmm. and trust. Yeah. Am I correct then from listening to you that cultural agility can be taught, that companies uh, uh, spend resources, time, and money in training their people, and that it can actually be communicated successfully to a large number of uh, their employees and uh, customers and, and managers? Mm -hmm. So uh, cultural agility, it's an interesting competency because the answer is yes and, mm -hmm. right? So what we know is that individuals, um, they are, are kind of hardwired in a way to mm -hmm. either have more cultural agility or less. It's, it's about how they can handle themselves in a situation of novelty. And that's kind of the nature part of cultural agility. Mm -hmm. But there's a whole nurture part too, and that's the training and development. Those are the opportunities to, to gain some awareness about how cultures differ. Uh, but it's also the opportunity to work on global teams, work in different countries, work in mm -hmm. different projects, work with diff people of different professions, different ages. Uh, so it's both. It's nurture and nature. There's definitely a place for selection, mm -hmm. and there's definitely a place for training. So if I'm not traveling, if my job is sitting in downtown Boston or downtown L.A., if most of my travel involves going from Brooklyn to Manhattan and back, <laughs> Uh, do I really need cultural agility? Oh, gosh, more than ever. And, mm. You know, it's interesting because mm. we, we're coming off of the heels of the pandemic. Right. And so many people are saying, asking the exact same question. You know, mm -hmm. they have so many of their meetings that have been intercultural have been a part of, you know, Zoom. And they're saying, well, look, it, if I'm always just on Zoom, do I really need cultural agility? Mm -hmm. And the answer is not only do you need it, you need it even more because you don't have the benefit of all of the cues that you would normally have when we're working face-to-face. -face. So, so yes, even if your work is in a mostly domestic environment, mm -hmm. but you're working in a multicultural one in that somebody does not have the same demographic characteristics as you, you'll need some cultural agility. And, and again, even more critical now that mm -hmm. we're, we're in a, an environment that's, that's more remote. I think you've written a book in the last year or two called Build Your Cultural Agility, is <laughs> that have. correct? I have, yes. So is it something that is impossible to have innately, or are there some people who have a, a greater uh, sympathy for other cultures and have uh, inborn cultural agility? Oh. And then a uh, follow-on question to that would be, uh, so for most of us who perhaps don't have this cultural agility, how do you go about 
making us, you know, more culturally uh, aware. Right. So, gosh, those are a lot of questions. So, the, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're really good ones. So it, it is true that the way our bodies handle serotonin and, mm-hmm. and dopamine, uh, neurotransmitters and hormones, it, it, mm-hmm. it sort of affects the way we as individuals move into situations of novelty. We have a, a primitive brain that whenever we go into a situation that's new to us, it mm-hmm. automatically wants to register threat. And in fact, you know, the way our bodies handle, again, the serotonin, mm-hmm. dopamine, neurotransmitters, hormones, it will affect kind of how we perceive an environment or situation as, as, as a concern or a risk. Mm-hmm. How we do that varies from person to person. So there are some people who can go into situations of novelty, travel by themselves, go into environments that they're unfamiliar, where they know mm-hmm. no one at all, and be completely comfortable. Other people see it as, as a bit of a risk and a bit of a concern or they get a bit anxious. So, mm-hmm. so there is a natural distribution just based on how we're wired of people who can naturally become more culturally agile. Mm-hmm. Now, that being said, that's only one component. If you think about cultural agility as a recipe, mm-hmm. that, that kind of hard wiring is only one piece or one Im- ingredient in the recipe. Mm-hmm. The other is is awareness building so so actually learning about what you what might be different Mm -hmm. and then the second one would be the experiences that you have so the opportunities to interact and work and 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 collaborate with people Mm -hmm. from different cultures so what we're finding is that it's kind of this this recipe if you will among kind of these competencies awareness and experiences and those three in combination are really what accelerates people's cultural agility? Competencies, competencies, awareness, and experience. And experience. So what happens, for example, during the pandemic, people stop traveling completely. Yeah. You stay at home, and you're afraid to go out, <laughs> and businesses cut back enormously on travel, their travel budgets, and people got used to not traveling. And so I've I understand that many companies today feel that they've learned from the pandemic that they can do business with overseas customers and with partners overseas uh, without traveling mm-hmm. in uh, global teams that are entirely virtual. So does your, does your thinking about cultural agility uh, apply equally to those new collaborative environments where we work in our own culture, but with uh, partners, collaborators in other cultures mm. entirely virtually? That's such a critical question now. Mm-hmm. I, I get that question all the time. We, we, we need cultural agility now more than ever, mm-hmm. because if we aren't physically getting on a plane and going over to meet people, it means that we're not having the opportunity mm-hmm. to gain trust and build credibility with partners, you mm-hmm. know, by social interactions or, or you know, mere neurons or whatever connects us human mm-hmm. to human to build trust. Without that kind of person to person connection, that means we need to do this in, in a more mm-hmm. s- a smaller environment, right? Which is the screen on Zoom or, mm-hmm. or whatever. And in a, in a condensed period of time. So that means we need to be very sensitive to the way we're being perceived and how we're interacting and how mm-hmm. we're connecting and the relationships that we're building and how we're understanding context. So it is critical now more than ever before, especially if we're not getting going on a plane. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say we're gonna have to, to really get creative about how we 
build cultural agility mm-hmm. without experiences, experiencing cultures. Um, so we're going to need to start to think about you know, how people are responding in generations across professions and the like. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, so this, is a big, this is a big challenge that we have now. Right. So with these new uh, you know, metaverses and augmented reality kinds of uh, thinking, could they simulate being in another culture for people who are in this situation of primarily collaborating virtually? We're starting to see some of that come mm-hmm. out. The, it, it's interesting. It will really very much depend on the quality of mm-hmm. that artificial intelligence that is really tricking your brain to believe that mm-hmm. you are physically mm-hmm. out of yeah. your home context or out of the context that you fully understand. Mm-hmm. If your brain believes that it's in a situation of novelty, it might be able to work. Because mm-hmm. that's really what we're doing. We're trying to get our our processing of a context of the situation that mm-hmm. we're in out of a limbic response, out of that innate response, and into more of a prefrontal cortex, more of a, a, a conscious response. We're trying to get people to linger longer in situations where where you can't predict, where it's ambiguity. Mm-hmm. And that's not natural. That that actually has to be trained and taught. Um, so it, it is so critical, but but I'm hopeful for artificial intelligence also. But again, I still hope we don't lose our ability to connect human to it human. It is an exciting possibility, yeah. and I think uh, the younger generations who are much more comfortable with these uh, video game avatars using virtual reality might be prime candidates for uh, testing and doing pilot studies of how, how well these can work. But let me ask you, in your book, you have some fascinating concepts. For example, you talk about the importance of humility as a key to cultural understanding. Do you want to tell me a little bit and tell our audience a little bit about why humility is so important? Sure. Humility, we found in our research that it is the most critical of the six cultural competencies. Mm -hmm. It is the most critical competency. So it's essentially the ability to say, I'm effective in finance, marketing, accounting, journalism, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever, oncology, whatever your field is, it mm-hmm. could be anything. But the ability to, ability to say, I need to be, learn how to be effective here mm-hmm. in this environment, in this organizational context, or with this generation, or in this country. Whatever, whatever that is, it's the humility to say, look at, could, could you give me some advice on how mm-hmm. to be effective here? It's not saying I'm not good at what I do. It just it's just the appreciation for the context that one's in. That by far, if I have if I see that individuals have high levels of cultural humility, mm-hmm. I'm almost certain they'll do well in a multicultural. I'll have to try that when I go somewhere next. Do you know the best question? Mm-hmm. I always I was the one if you can master this one, you can mm-hmm. get go get so far. It's the ability to say, um, could you explain to me how I could be more effective? Here, so the ability to ask that question, or after you do a mm-hmm. presentation or a meeting or whatever, is there any advice you, person who knows the culture, mm-hmm. is there any advice you'd give me to be even more effective in this context? Mm-hmm. You'll learn all kinds of wonderful techniques and skills. Mm-hmm. And you also talk about the fact that it's highly stressful to try to cope with the culture that you're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. And you suggest in your book, I think, about meditation and mindfulness as some practices that could be of great help to uh, people who are trying to become more culturally agile. Mm-hmm. Do you want to tell our audience a little bit more about why mindfulness and meditation <laughs> are important, even you know, outside of your home when you come home in, in the evening and want to uh, you know, uh, de- uh, just r- relax and, 
and relieve the stress of the day, but also in international travel and international uh, business uh, uh, conduct, that this could be very useful. Yeah. So what we know from research is that even if people are enjoying, loving the opportunity to be in another country, mm -hmm. uh, research was, has found that those individuals, when tracked over time, so comparing people who have lived, lived abroad with people who are staying domestically, if you track them over time, so the full duration of the time they're living in a home country or a host mm -hmm. country, you can see that their stress hormones are increased. Mm -hmm. Basically, a situation and novelty puts your brain on, on kind of high alert, if you will. Mm -hmm. Any brain that's on high alert naturally, it, it basically it's, it's stressed, right? Mm -hmm. so, so your brain will naturally go to cognitive ease and emotional ease. It's, it's just the most natural thing in the world. So in doing so, what ends up happening is people have a tendency to when, when their bodies are under stress, we naturally try to seek cognitive closure. We try to understand the situation faster than we possibly could if we were mm -hmm. in an environment that was um, new or uh, not new to us, right? Mm -hmm. So what we know is that mindfulness training, and, and I use this with my undergraduate students, I use it with my MBA students, but I also use it with the senior executives I work with. Mm -hmm. Mindfulness training basically moves us to the present. And you have to train it. <laughs> For anyone who's ever tried mindfulness meditation, mm -hmm. you really do have to train your brain um, to to kind of just fully be present. Mm -hmm. But what we're finding is that individuals who have a higher level of mindfulness, mm -hmm. who have uh, the ability to, to put themselves in the present, when they go into a situation of novelty, two good things happen. One is that they can they can be calm. They can they can lower anxiety levels in that situation of novelty. And they can spend a longer time in the ambiguity of that new context, of that new situation, of that new place. And so they can, they can observe more, they can ask more questions, they can linger longer in a state of, of not knowing what's happening, just mm -hmm. observing. And when you can turn to people who do know the context and say, hey, this is what I saw objectively, this is what I'm observing, they can then explain what's what's happening. Mm -hmm. So it's a beautiful technique. It's a, it's a wonderful mechanism for making people effective. I have to also maybe start trying to practice mindfulness. <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, another factor, another very, very interesting part of your uh, book and your thinking is about the importance of curiosity. Yeah. I love the piece where you talk about Leonardo da Vinci's to-do list. And I just was blown away that such a genius would have such a broad range of uh, items on his to-do list. And so would you tell us in why curiosity is so important uh, to be uh, a successful global uh, businessman and, uh, and gain cultural agility? Right. So curiosity is an interesting construct because everyone assumes we have it. Mm -hmm. You know, we all assume if you ask somebody if they're a curious person, of course I am. When actually only about 20% or so of the population, at least from my data, seem to have a natural level of curiosity. Mm -hmm. Meaning you, you kind of go into a situation that's new to you and you say, yeah, I kind of figure out, yeah, I sort of know what's going on. Good mm -hmm. enough, right? Mm -hmm. People who are naturally curious, they'll keep asking questions about the environment. They'll keep asking questions about how are things done here? Why is it, is it done this way? Or what does this mean? And in doing so, they learn the context. They learn how to be effective in that environment. So they're the ones that have mm -hmm. the, the ability to be, you know, really 
effective in the environment because they've just learned more. So curiosity is great. We also see people who, are high who have high levels of curiosity. They tend to do all the good research ahead of time, too. So they're, they're more prepared mm -hmm. uh, to see. So in your own experience, can you give an example of how you use curiosity to become more comfortable uh, with the culture? Oh. to become more culturally intelligent? I, you know, I can, can, I, I can mm. do one really sort of yeah. fun, quick example. Sure. Um, I was in Finland. It'll connect both the humility and this mm -hmm. cultural curiosity. Uh, I was in Finland giving a talk, and it was to a, a, a group of, you know, senior leaders, and the, I f was following a fellow who's German. So in mm -hmm. Finland, following a German, and the German was asking questions, and these the Finnish mm -hmm. members from the Finnish audience were responding, which was great. Mm -hmm. I got up and I was doing the same. I gave my talk. I was asking questions. Silence. I'm like, oh. So if mm. I didn't ask any questions at that moment, mm -hmm. I could have said, oh, it must have been my accent or mm. I must have been, yeah. you know, they were bored or whatever. I could have given it lots of reasons, but none of them would have been correct. So I went to my Finnish host and I asked the question. So this was the humility and the mm -hmm. curiosity. I said, is there any way? I noticed. My German colleague had answers from the mm -hmm. audience, and I didn't. Is there any way I could have been more effective in that environment? Mm -hmm. She was fantastic. She said, Paula, you're used to an American audience. All you need to do is have a slight inflection in your voice, <laughs> and Americans will jump in. Yeah. We Finns, we're a little more reserved. You have to invite. I'm asking you a question, group. What do you think about this? And actually have it up as a question. The next time I gave the talk, it was brilliant. It was that little piece of advice that changed that changed the outcome of the experience. So mm -hmm. that's the humility and the curiosity that together uh, really do. I mean, that, that's kind of the beauty of cultural agility, right? It's a set of competencies mm -hmm. to learn the environment. I have to think that our audience's curiosity is aroused. <laughs> so if they want to learn more, sure. what can they do? Where should they go next? Sure. Well, you were kind enough to mention the Public Benefit Corporation, Skillify. Mm -hmm. We have a, a free tool called MyGuide. Mm -hmm. uh, we can put it in the show notes, I'm sure, but it's M-Y-G-I-I-D-E.com. Mm -hmm. uh, if they go to MyGuide.com, they can do a self-assessment on cultural values, mm -hmm. compare themselves to different cultures. They can also do a self-assessment on those competencies, things like humility and curiosity, tolerance of ambiguity and the like, um, and have lots of information on how to build cultural agility. So it's a great resource, myguide.com. Uh, I'd highly recommend it. Well, I think I must take this test <laughs> to see if I've gained any cultural agility sure over the haven't. years. So thank you so much, Paula. This oh. has been really fascinating, interesting to me personally. And I hope uh, all of you listening out there uh, now value this concept of cultural agility and perhaps uh, are somewhat humble by Paula's uh, deep knowledge and think I should try harder to be more culturally intelligent and uh, culturally agile. So thank you so much for uh, listening and we will see you again at our next uh, podcast.